You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it, man, whatever. Half of you are asleep. Are you guys doing okay? All right, that was even worse than the first time. This is fantastic. Oh, man, tough crowd. Um, nah, nah, I'm not up here to, to tell jokes and entertain. Um, I have uh, more dignity than that than Brandon. Um, now, <laughs> yeah, we're continuing our series that we started a few weeks back called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. And again, we say this every week. I always like to remind new people where we're at. What we're doing is we're looking at Old Testament stories and how they foreshadow and point to Jesus. Because Jesus himself says, and different writers in the New Testament say, that all scripture points to Jesus. And that every person, every major event, everything in the Old Testament was just a type and shadow of the one who was to come, which is Jesus. Um, And this evening, we're still in Genesis, and this evening I, I get the privilege to preach on one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Russell Crowe and Emma Watson made a movie about it? It was horrible. Did anyone see that movie? Like, seriously, if you know what I'm talking about, it's like three hours just gone. Like, I'm never going to get that back. I could have been taking a nap. I could have been reading a book. I could have, you know, been hitting myself in the head with a hammer. Uh, Anything, right? Like, just for the record, like, Emma Watson, if you're you're listening to this by divine providence, (laughs) no one wants to see you be anything but Hermione Granger. Amen? Right? And Russell Crowe is the gladiator, right? Are you not entertained? Right? That's, that's it. Like, that's Hermione and the gladiator decided to do a movie about Noah. Right? <laughs> Makes no sense to me. Not in, uh, there's just as much witchcraft, I suppose, as Harry Potter. I hated that film. I'm sorry. I hated it. I love Harry Potter. Hated the Noah movie. But tonight, if you couldn't tell, after I've ranted, uh, we're going to be looking at the account of Noah and the Great Flood. Um, and just real quick, I call these... I know the name of the series is Bible Stories, but the reason why I've been using the word the account of Cain and Abel, the account of the creation, the account of Noah and the flood, is because these are historical realities. These things happen. These are not myths. Uh, The Bible is the inspired, inerrant, historically accurate word of God. And he told us these things because they actually happened. Um, But this account of of Noah and the flood, um, it really is an account of the judgment and fury of God. It really is, if you think about it. It's, it's an account of the, of the fury and judgment of God towards sin and towards sinners. Um, which it always strikes me as odd because of that, that parents want to decorate their children's nursery with Noah's Ark. <laughs> right? They're like, hey, uh, son, I want to put this in your room. It's an account of the time that the Lord flooded the entire world and killed everyone but eight people. Um, Good night. Right? <laughs> right? Like, just peck them on the forehead and walk out their bedroom door. Uh, right? But not only is this an account of the wrath of God and his displeasure against sin, but this account also reveals the sovereign grace of God towards sinners. Right? And we're going to be using that word sovereign and sovereign grace a lot. And that just means God does what he wills. He shows grace to whom he desires to show grace, and he's not obligated to show it to anybody. That's what we mean by sovereign grace. And then not only that, but then Noah, we're going to see. Noah gives us a great example of how recipients of that grace appropriately respond to God. So I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this sermon is really, really simple. Um, this is probably uh, going to be review for a lot of you. Uh, maybe you've just never heard uh, the flood account being preached this way. Um, but these themes, you guys have heard this. If you've been here at Revolution very long at all, you're going to hear a lot of repeated themes. Uh, but the thing about the Bible is it repeats itself all the time because we're stupid and we don't listen, right? So God says we're going to put this record on repeat, right, from Genesis to Revelation. Um, and again, just by way of warning, right? So not only is this going to be a simple message, but I'm willing to say this. Um, if, you're, if you're here and you're a Calvinist, um, I'm on your team. I'm in that tribe, totally. Um, but if you're a young Calvinist, and I don't mean age, but I mean you're new to those doctrines, um, you are going to be totally on board with me for like the first half of this sermon, right? Like I, I know like we're a pretty quiet congregation, but like your inner Baptist is going to come out and you're going to want to probably amen some stuff. Um, but again, you're going to be cool with the first half of this sermon. Um, and if you're an Arminian here, right, like Wesleyan, Methodist, more kind of like that, an Arminian, um, then you're really going to dig the middle part of this sermon. And I think everyone's going to really be into the end for certain, uh, but everyone's probably going to be uncomfortable at some point. <laughs> Right, And I, I'm fully prepared to offend three-quarters of this entire congregation uh, because I was uncomfortable whenever I was studying for this sermon. Uh, but it, it makes sense that God's word would rub against our grain and make us think 
in ways that we normally don't because we're sinners and God is holy and righteous. So that would make sense. Um, so again, we, we have to believe whatever the scriptures teach, even if we don't like it. Um, not only that, but I, I am, am obligated by God to teach what the Bible says. Um, so again, this is why I, I don't say, like, I'm ready to offend everyone because like, I like to be a jerk. I kind of do sometimes. That's not my point today. Um, I say that because our opinions do not matter. Scripture matters. Right? Don't, don't ever forget that. We're going to be talking about that in a few weeks uh, in depth. Our opinions do not matter. The Bible does. So I, I, my prayer this whole week has been that uh, if any of these doctrines I'm going to teach about offend you at all, um, that God would open your heart and soften your heart so you could receive these things because they're kind of hard. But at the end of the day, God is good and righteous in everything he does. Um, so without any more for introduction, we are in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 22. And then we're going to jump to chapter 8, uh, verses 20 and 22. Right? So the very beginning and the very end. Uh, of this whole account with Noah and the flood. And for the record, we usually preach out of the NLT, and those are those blue Bibles in the backs of those chairs. Uh, take one home, or backs of the pews, take one home with you. Uh, but this evening, I'm going to be preaching out of the English Standard Version. Um, I'm kicking around, changing the, the translation of the Bible that we preach from here, so pray for me about that. It's kind of a, a big deal for me. Um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Skipping on to chapter 8. This is after the flood. Right? So you guys pretty much know the story. It rains for 40 days, 40 nights, the whole thing. Uh, it's around about a year they're on the ark. Um, could you imagine that year with, like, the animals? Like, that'd be horrible. Like, thank God he told him to put a roof in there for ventilation's sake. That would be awful. Um, so, like, after, yeah, as my lame, like, joke, as your lame preacher joke for the day, uh, full of them. But, like, so, like, the rains come down, the whole thing. Everyone, everyone dies. The whole world is flooded. Then, finally, the waters recede. And now, after the waters have receded and Noah and his family come out, that's where we're picking up in chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every, or took every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Let's pray. Father, please 
open us up to the Scriptures. Speak through me. Anything that I say that's inaccurate, God, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But anything that I say that's true and from your word, God, I pray that we would receive it as your word because it is your word and you are infallible. Open the eyes of an unbeliever. Draw them into saving faith in Christ. Sanctify us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so at first glance, at first glance, whenever we, whenever we look at this passage, we can really, really, really screw this whole story up and get it really wrong, right? This happens a lot. I kind of had this thought growing up for certain, what I'm getting ready to say. And here's this thought, that if we read it and, and, and don't think about it much, we can get this thought that, okay, the earth is full of really bad guys, and Noah is a righteous guy, so God decides to save Noah, Right? Like, that, that's honestly, that's, that's kind of what I was taught. Like, God saved Noah because Noah was a good guy. He looked around the world and saw everyone else sucked, so he killed them all and saved Noah, right? Um, and that turns this story into God saves the good guys and destroys all the bad guys. But that message is the opposite of the gospel, right? The, what, what I mean is the gospel says that everyone is awful and God decides to save awful people. Right, that there is no one good, that no one can earn their salvation, that God does not give out mercy and grace because people deserve it. That's actually, by definition, you don't give out grace and mercy because people deserve it. You give it to people who don't deserve it. Right, that Jesus died for the ungodly, not the godly. Jesus died to save sinners, not the righteous. Right? So we know if the idea that God only saves the righteous, um, that, that God looks over the earth and saves Noah because he's a good guy, if we know that that is the opposite of the gospel, and we know that all Scripture, according to Christ, points to Christ crucified, right? Points to the gospel. Then we know that there must be something else that God is trying to teach us from this passage, right? God is not teaching us a works-based salvation. He's not teaching us be a really good person um, and God will save you just because you're so good. Again, that's anti-gospel. I would argue that is anti-Christ to view the story this way. Right, so this story... If you think about it, if you've read this text very much, this story isn't even really about Noah. Like, no joke. God speaks, I think, six or seven times throughout, like, chapters, like, six through nine. Noah doesn't talk until, like, chapter nine, verse 20. Right? Like, Noah says nothing. Right? This story is about God. Noah never speaks, but we see God speaks, God judges, God saves. God gives instructions, right? God is the main character of this. And again, I, I want to get that clear because the Bible is not a book about you. It's not a book about me. It's not even a book about the characters of the people who are in the book. This is a, the Bible is a book about God and what he does and his plan of redemption for mankind. But in this passage, throughout this story, what I see is I see four things. So if you're a note taker, here they are, man. I don't, even, I don't think they're going to be up there, but go on. Um, one, man is wicked. Right? Man is totally depraved. Man is wicked. Two, God shows sovereign grace to whom he wills. God gives grace to whoever he wants to give grace to. And also by con- like the opposite, God chooses to not give grace to whoever he doesn't want to give grace to. Third, Noah shows the proper response to grace. Four, it is a sacrifice that ultimately turns God's wrath away from mankind, not Noah. Not anything Noah did, but the sacrifice is what turns God's wrath. Okay, so in chapter 6, verse 5, this starts the whole thing, and God repeats himself a bunch throughout this whole narrative, that man is wicked, right? Mankind is sinful. Every thought, every word, every action, right, said the intent of man's heart is only evil, right, which means it's bent towards sin and only sin. It's bent towards only evil continually. That means no breaks, day and night, from the cradle to the grave, wickedness, rebellion against God. And whenever God makes this uh, statement in verse 5, this is without exception, okay? And what I mean by that is that verse includes Noah and Noah's family. That verse includes the, one who's, the ones who are going to be saved from the flood. That everyone and everything is in rebellion against God. Right? And, and I think what that means, just to give some examples, is mankind as a whole is ignoring God. 
They're not worshiping him. They're not obeying him. Uh, Specifically, the passage says uh, in other places that they're being violent towards one another. They're sinning against one another, but first and foremost, they're sinning against God. Again, from the cradle to the grave. And all of this is a result of what we talked about two weeks ago. All of this, all sin, is a byproduct, or rather a direct result of the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, the fall of mankind. Through Adam's sin, all become sinners. It's something we talked about last week in Romans chapter 5. Through the sin of one man, death entered into the world and sin with it. And all became sinners for all sinned in Adam. Adam was our representative. So we all become sinners because Adam sinned. And that's why we sin. You don't, you're not a sinner because you sin. You, you sin because you're a sinner. That's a, always a fun concept. This is in your nature. Right? So because of what Adam did, we all inherit a sin nature. Which means we all inherit this disposition against God. And against obeying Him. And we have it from the moment that we're conceived. We don't want Him. We don't want to listen to Him. Ever. On our own, right? The the Bible in some translations talk about the natural man. Right? The nature that we're born with. The natural man does not want God. This is why the Bible says man is continually wicked. It is ingrained into him to rebel against God. Because of Adam and Eve's sin. Right? So again, mankind has been totally wicked by nature since the fall. Right? This is before Noah's time, obviously. But even after the flood, mankind is still continually wicked. Uh, chapter 8, verse 21 tells us that even after God flooded the earth in judgment, that man is still wicked. What, what did it say exactly? I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So, like, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed about man. From before the, before the flood, after the flood, everything is the same. Again, it, it mirrors uh, verse 5 in, in chapter 6. He, he's making the same statement. That, that, that's astounding that God's judgment on the world did not change man's nature. And Scripture is really clear on that. That this nature, apart from the sovereign work of God in the person, that nature doesn't go away. Again, the nature you're born with. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that no one is righteous. Not even one person. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That none seek God even. Paul in Romans 3 is quoting Isaiah. He says, no one seeks God. Everyone has turned and gone their own way. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, all are by nature children of God's wrath. Following sin and following Satan. All the days of their lives. This is what we do by nature. Jesus Christ Himself says, No one is good but God. Right? Meaning no human being is good. Paul again in Romans 6 says that we are under the power of sin by nature. And Romans 8 says that the mind set on the flesh, this natural mind that we're born into, is hostile against God. It will not please God. It will not obey God. Indeed, it cannot please or obey God. Scripture is really, really, really clear on the fact that every intent of man's heart is continually wicked. And even if you don't think this is you, I'll call God correct and the whole world a liar. God knows your heart better than you do. This is the the natural state that we're born into. But not only do the Scriptures teach this, we can see this in our life experiences, can we not? This is one of my favorite examples. No one has to teach a child to be violent. Right? That cute little niece that Brandon was telling you guys about, she is the devil. Right? Like, if we're just going to be honest, like, she is really, really mean. Um, I, yeah, she is the devil, Brandon. I ask her to give me a kiss. She smacks me in the face and pulls my beard. I don't understand this broad. Right? She's mean. Right? This is the little three-year-old sinner. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love that baby. But seriously, though, no one has to teach a child to be violent. They do that completely on their own. No one has to teach a child to take something that doesn't belong to them. It's mine, and they just take it from you, right? No one has to teach a child to lie. Like, Natalie, did you eat that cookie? Mm-mm. Right? And she's like chewing on it the whole time. Like, no, I didn't take that. Right? No one has to teach a kid to lie. No one has to teach a child to disobey their parents. No one has to teach a child to be discontent with what they have. It's coveting. Right? Kids see another kid with a toy and they want to take it from them or they start crying. They, they want it. No one has to teach a kid to sin. Right? And then whenever we get older, we see that if anything, we get worse. Right? I mean, like externally, we might not smack someone in the face because like they have a car that we want. Like, some people do walk around the East End. It gets wild. But, like, 
But like we can see that like on the inside, we actually get worse. Someone says a bad word to us, what do we do? Right? Like say says something that we don't like or hurts our feelings. We we reply back with an insult if we're feeling gutsy. Right, but let's be honest, we're usually too passive-aggressive for that. We'd rather just think it, right? Like, you jerk. We'd rather think bad things. Um, or whenever we see someone do something bad or wrong, especially to us or someone we love, we begin to wish bad things would happen to them. We want them to suffer. God forbid, even though it's all equally sin, we do bad things to other people. Like, you don't have to be alive for very long to understand that human beings are awful. There's war, there's poverty where no one cares for the poor, no one cares to help people. Right? Like we, we, we see and know that there are people starving around the world and we change the channel whenever the commercials come on, right? People are wicked. Every intention is evil continually. We do this naturally and no one has to teach us to sin. People are not basically good. I don't care what the culture says. I know that's a big thing that I hear from people on campus, which is foolish to me, because apparently you've not studied anthropology or like looked at like history whatsoever. People are not good. People are self-centered and self-seeking. Nobody wants to naturally submit to any authority. Everyone wants to do their own will all the time. No one wants to submit to the government, police, nobody, let alone submit to a holy God who is holy unlike us, And submit to his law that rubs against our grain. No one wants to do this. And because of man's wickedness, what does God decide to do? He says, I'm going to kill all of them. Let that set in for a minute. Do you have a compartment in your your theological box to put that? God says, I'm going to kill all of them because of their sin. They deserve to die because of their rebellion against me. Chapter 6, verse 6 says that he was grieved to his heart, which does not mean, this is why I'm using this translation instead of the NLT, it said, and it broke God's heart that man sinned. No. No. Grieved to his heart means God personally took offense at this sin. He sees this, and it's not just some ethereal concept that he says, I really don't like that. This is a personal rebellion against the king of the universe. So God determined to judge the world because of it. Verse 7 in chapter 6, he says, I will blot out mankind. Which carries this connotation, I'm going to wipe clean from the world. I'm going to remove what does not belong. God says in his fierce judgment, he is going to clean house. And I know what some people say, and I know some of you may be thinking, that is immoral that God would kill all of those people. That is immoral that God would say, I'm going to wipe out the human race. And I'll just say this, if you think that, then you have a problem with God's character. God says he did it. God declares he is holy. God declares he hates sin, that he is a righteous judge, that he is perfect in all of his ways, in everything that he does. That he's sovereign and who can tell him to keep his hand away from anything? He does as he pleases. If we have a problem with God doing this, then we really don't believe that he's holy. We really don't believe he's righteous. But keep in mind, all deserve this punishment. God has declared their wickedness before he declares their judgment. And still today... God declares that the wages of sin is death. This is a physical and spiritual death. This is hell. He says, sin, like, what's the payment for that? You go to hell. The wages of sin is death. God, he's immutable. That means his character never changes, which means he's still holy. He's still holy. Man is still wicked. So God still is determined to judge sinners. God promises to cast sinners into hell because of the rebellion against him. And no one deserves to be saved. Everyone is doing what they want to do. And as a result, everyone who perishes in hell is getting what is coming to them. They're getting justice. God says, you break my law, this is the punishment. And man breaks law. They get what, what We get what's coming to us should we perish. And that includes Noah. He is human and he is wicked and he deserves to die. And if God would have said, I'm not going to save Noah... God would have been justified in doing so. But Noah found favor 
in the eyes of the Lord. I always try to paint a really dark picture so that the sweetness of God's grace always just appears all the more sweet. Like, like a diamond set on a black velvet cloth in a display case at the jewelry store. Guys, you're going to spend way too much money if you ever get married buying one of those rings. That's why they put it there, so the diamond sparkles more. The grace of God is only bright on the backdrop of his wrath and his judgment and holiness and hatred of sin. Verse 8 in chapter 6 says, Noah found favor. Favor is the same Hebrew word that gets translated into grace in other passages. And of course, Noah had to find favor. Right? And what I mean by that is Noah did not earn this. He's a sinner. Of course, this is just something that he, he stumbles upon, or rather God just gives to him. God decided to show Noah grace, though Noah didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it just like no one else on the earth deserved it. And what did God do? In his sovereignty, he chose to save Noah before the Bible calls Noah a righteous man. Again, the scriptures, I think, are ordered in a, in a, in a, with a reason. Verse 8 says, Noah found favor, which means God bestowed grace upon Noah. And then in verse 9, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. I think those are in that order. God has to give grace first. And this grace is an act of God's will, purely of God's own volition. Again, we cannot merit grace. That's the definition of grace. It's getting something that you don't deserve. So though all deserve to die, God in his own predetermined will decides to save Noah. I, I, can't, I know I'm repeating myself. Noah didn't deserve it. He was just another sinner. But God chose to set his saving love on Noah. Consider this, God chose to save, sovereignly, eight people out of the entire human race. Some theologians have done some math, and they say that there very well could have been a few billion people on the earth at this point in time. This is 1,600 years into humanity with exponential mathematics and all that good stuff. I'm looking at you, Matt. You'd enjoy that. Right? Matt's a math teacher and a nerd. Um, But God chose to save eight people out of the entire human race. And I'm convinced of this. The only reason that God decided to save eight out of the possible billions was because of the promise that God made to Eve back in Genesis 3 that I will bring the Messiah through your offspring. And Noah is an offspring and descendant of Eve. So God saves because of his promise. He saves. Know this if you're a Christian or or even if you're not a believer. I don't care. Know this. God saves for the glory of his name. And because of his faithfulness. God does not look in you and see anything in you worth saving. He does not. Because there's nothing in us worth saving. We are corrupted. We have sinned against him. We're rebels. But God says, because of my promise to Eve, I will save. Because of my grace and to the praise and glory of my name and my honor and my fame, I will save. Again, nothing to do with Noah. Nothing to do with us. This is how God always saves Always, like literally, I sound like you know, a white girl in her 20s, like literally, like always, God chooses whom he wills to save. I'm not going to get super deep into this, but this is the doctrine of election. And I know that makes pe- some people cringe. All right? This is the doctrine of election. And that means God saves whomever he wants to save. That in eternity past, before God laid the foundations for the world, we're going to read a passage in a minute that says that. Before God did anything, he determined the ones whom he was going to save. And he chose them. He chose them because he's sovereign. He chose them because he wants all the praise for their salvation. He chooses whom he wills. And likewise, he passes over those whom he wills. Again, God doesn't force anyone to sin. God doesn't force anyone to reject him. But he gives grace to the ones whom he wants and he leaves the rest to their own wickedness to do whatever their heart desires and their heart is continually wicked. They will never choose him if he does not choose them first. 
So if you think about it, if, and the reason why I spent so much time talking about the wickedness of man, if man is as corrupt as God says man is, then this is the only way for anyone to be saved. If the mindset on the flesh is hostile against God and won't obey Him and cannot obey Him, then surely the only way that anyone can be saved is if God says, I'm choosing you and I'm going to change you myself to a person who desires me. Because we can't overcome, I've used this analogy, we can't like determine what flavors that we like or what like colors that we find beautiful, right? We can't change our nature. We can't change our dispositions to want something instead of one thing instead of another. What makes us think that we can do that on our own? The Bible says that our nature is so corrupt that we can't. So God has to be the one who does this. This is the only way for us to be saved. Through grace through the sovereign election and grace of God. I don't know if you know this or not, but the dude who wrote Amazing Grace believed that. He believed that God chooses, so surely this grace is amazing if there's nothing that a human being can do to merit it. If this is all God's free choice. And this may be hard to swallow, right? I'm, I'm not a fool. I'm looking at some of your faces. I love you to death. I know that this is really, really hard to swallow. Um, and still to this day for me, these kinds of things are hard for me to swallow as well. Um, but remember this, none deserve to be saved. Not one. No one is innocent. All are sinners. None seek God. The Bible uses very, very, very clear terms in that. So this is really incredible grace that God would choose to save anyone. If none seek God and none desire Him and all go their own way and all rebel against Him, this is incredible. If God decided to save one person, we would have to look back and say, what a gracious God. But the fact that He says He's going to save untold multitudes from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that is astounding. That's staggering. How gracious is this God? Though he may only give this saving grace to his elect, this is still incredible grace. And again, God doesn't change, so this is still how he saves. His choice to give grace. Ephesians chapter 1 says this. This is one of the most just iconic, memorable passages in Ephesians and in the New Testament in general. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, whether you agree with me or not, this is what happened to you. God chose you. Like, how staggering is that? If you know what a sinner you are, if you're like me, right, and you're keenly aware of your daily failure of who you were before you came to know Christ, God chose you. Knowing everything that you would ever do, all of your rebellion against Him, He chose you. According to the praise of His glorious grace, in accordance with His will, because this is just what He wanted to do because it pleased Him. God does this because He wants all the credit in our salvation. He wants all credit for everything. That's why He saves this way. Consider this. No Christian would ever say, I am saved because I am so smart that I would make this decision. Would you? Or I'm saved because I was so good to make this decision. That's appalling, isn't it? To say that we would be saved by something that we do because of our own intellect? That's disgusting. No Christian would ever say that. God's God's people throughout eternity are going to shout, Sovereign grace has saved me. God's will, God's salvation, God alone, not me. That's what we're going to shout. Sovereign grace has saved me, not me. And thank God for that because we could have never willed ourselves into salvation. 
God must choose us first or we will never choose him. We're too wicked. This is amazing grace. But remember this. The story doesn't end with that, does it? Like it doesn't end with verse 8. Right? So this is where that turnaround comes, where all like the young Calvinists are probably going to start to be like, ah, Dave, what are you talking about? Are you a heretic? Right? That's not the case. Um, the story does not end with verse 8. Right? It's not, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Roll the credits. Right? Again, that would be better than the Emma Watson flick. But whatever. Um, the story doesn't end with verse 8. God does not levitate Noah above the flood supernaturally when the water comes and save him that way. Right? That's not what happens. As a result of sovereign grace, Noah begins to live righteously, doesn't he? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. One verse right after the other. The scriptures tell us in verse 22 that after God gives Noah commands, he says, Noah did all this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah is, hear, hear me out. This was a cool sentence. I did not come up with this. This is from Matthew Henry. I just reworded it to modern English. Noah is saved by grace. He could not have been saved without God's choice to save him. But God would not have saved Noah if Noah hadn't built the ark. Weird to think about, isn't it? He couldn't have been saved if God wouldn't have shown him grace. God wouldn't have saved him if he would have refused to build the ark. We can see just with that kind of a concept, with the truth of this story, how God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together. It's not that God chooses whom he wills to be saved and mankind has no obligations or no responsibilities whatsoever, right? It's not the case. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God is sovereign over all events and chooses to save whom he will and chooses to pass over whom he will. And mankind is still responsible for their sin and is still responsible to respond to this grace properly. It's this idea called compatibilism. Right? We don't have to try to reconcile man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, why would I try to reconcile them? They're friends. Friends never need reconciled. But Noah had to respond to God in faith. Noah had to respond to God in trust. That's what faith means. Is I trust you. And if I trust you and you give me a command and I trust you with everything that I am, then I'm going to be obedient to the command. Which is why James tells us in James chapter 2 that faith works. Right? Faith works itself out into obedience. Because faith, the profession of faith without works, is a dead faith. Which means it can't save. It's not real. So Noah had to respond in genuine faith. And genuine faith works. I say that because Hebrews 11.7 says this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So by faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So this tells us that how Noah responded to God's grace. It says that he responded in faith. Everything that he did was by faith. Noah's building the ark, what I'm saying, it proved his faith to be genuine. That was the evidence of his faith. So, election and sovereign grace, right, of God given to us always results in true faith. True faith always has action and good works to evidence itself. We do not believe, because the Bible does not teach, in cheap grace. We do not believe in cheap grace. And what I mean by that is whenever someone says, or rather cheap faith, yeah, I believe that's true, so I guess I'm a Christian, so I'm saved. Like, I mentally assent to the truths of Christianity. I believe the stories are true, so I guess that means that I'm saved because we're saved by faith, and I mentally believe it. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about grace being this encounter that we have with God, where God reaches into us and pulls out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, and and He teaches us to love Him. He lets us see him as beautiful. Right? It's like getting hit by a truck. And this is a really overused analogy, but it's one of my favorites. If you come to me and tell me, hey man, I got hit by a Mack truck on my way to church. I was walking. And you're telling me this? I don't believe that because like, your face would look way different if you got hit by a Mack truck. You're not telling the truth. You're lying. 
It's the same thing with saying that you've encountered the grace of God and you have responded in faith, and yet your life looks no different from an unbeliever. Yet you're still at peace with your sin. That's cheap faith. That's cheap grace to say, I mentally believe it, therefore I'm saved, and that's not what the Bible says. So our faith, if we've really received God's grace, must be like Noah's. It must be a working faith. Right? And that concept reminded me of this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It means that God is declaring in that verse that we will not be saved apart from holiness. The reason why the author of Hebrews, I would argue probably the Apostle Paul, but the reason why the author of Hebrews says that is because earlier it says that Christ died in order to save us and sanctify us, which means to make us holy, to make us more like himself. So God says, I will not save you without holiness because that's what my son died to do. Whenever the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to you, this is what it will result in is holiness. Now, I'm not teaching salvation by works. All right, because I know that, that if, if this is all you've heard, that's, that's probably what you think, right, if, if you've not been paying much attention. I, I want us to understand the importance of holiness, right? Like John Wesley, as much as I like to kind of crack on the man's theology, holiness unto the Lord, right, that was his big thing. He's totally right. Holiness unto the Lord. God demands it. He says, you must be holy as I am holy. He not only says that in the Old Testament, he says it in the New Testament, so it bears repeating. God demands that we be holy, He demands it from those who have received grace. What I mean by holiness is a hatred of sin, a striving to be like Jesus, a striving to do good works, a striving to bring God glory and honor and praise. Without a striving for holiness, we prove that we are not in that elect group that God chose to give His mercy to. Right? There's no evidence. Imagine if you're in a courtroom and God's saying, like, judging you. He says, what evidence do you have? You claim that that you've been saved by faith. What evidence do you have? With no works, you have no evidence. And God says, okay, it was false then because all of my people who have responded in faith have works. They have evidence. So question, do you strive for holiness? Do you make war on your sin? Do you push to do good? Do you honor God with your life? Do you desire to do those things? I'll say this, maybe your affection towards God has grown cold and you're lacking in those things now. But if there's not even a desire for those things, you you really should be worried. The reason why I wanted to go on to this, I, I know we have a lot of Calvinists, we have a lot of Reformed people in this church, myself included. I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that an easy believism saves or that just because we believe in the doctrines of predestination or sovereign grace and election and those things, that that means that we can live however we want to live because that's a huge problem with a lot of what they call neo-Calvinists. And I, I do not want to be responsible for anyone thinking that. That's not what the Bible teaches. That kind of false faith does not save. In fact, the Apostle Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure. For the sake of time, I won't read you the entire passage. But he he tells us to make these qualities ours. He says, supplement faith with virtue, and and virtue with self-control, and knowledge, and steadfastness, and godliness, and all of these things. He says, God has called us to his own glory, and excellence. Not only our salvation, but He has called us to become like Him. He's given us like precious promises that we could become partakers in His divine nature, which means become more like Him. And then He says this, For if these qualities are yours, if you're striving for these things, if you're striving to be like Christ, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, means hardworking, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you 
and entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, make sure, if you claim to have responded to grace in faith, if you claim to be a member of the elect of God, make sure that that's true. To sum up all that, he's saying, Paul, Peter is saying in that passage, growing in holiness is how we can know. It's the evidence that we can have that we belong to Christ. He says, if these are yours and they are increasing, you can know. But if you don't, then you, you can't know. That's a horrible place to be in, to claim something that you don't know if it's true. But again, all of this work and all of this holiness... Know this. It's not your raw willpower. It's, it's God working in you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. So God didn't show me grace for no reason. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's saying, so yeah, I work diligently. But it's the grace of God working in me that empowers me. So we see grace results in faith, results in our justification before God, which results in our growing in holiness to God, which ultimately results in our final salvation. And there is no skipping any of these according to the Bible. You must have all of them. Because all of these happen to God's people. God declares that. But at the end of this story, we see that God's anger towards humanity is soothed. Right? That's part of the word Noah and like Noah presenting a sacrifice to kind of have like a similar root word. It means God's anger was soothed and he promises to never destroy earth with a flood ever again. Here's my question. Here's the question that, that, that this, was, this was astounding to me that I had never seen this before. Did any of Noah's holiness, because we've just been talking about holiness and obedience a lot, right? And I get that. And I know some of you probably think that I'm a legalist now. I'm not. Okay? Did any of Noah's holiness or obedience turn God's wrath away from humanity? No. God says that man is still wicked in in chapter 8, verse 21. He says man is still wicked. We see in chapter 9, Noah gets hammered drunk and naked. It's weird. And then we see his son Ham goes into the tent and, and, and does something dishonorable to his father. Man does not soothe God's anger because man is still wicked. Right? But what does is, what is chapter 8 tell us? It says that a sacrifice turned God's wrath from humanity. Not Noah's obedience. Not, not even his faith turned wrath away from humanity. A sacrifice took away God's wrath. This points us to Christ crucified in our place. Where Jesus bore the guilt and penalty for our sins that we deserve. God says they all deserve to die. Jesus says I will die in their place. I will suffer their wrath in their place as a substitute. And God's justice that we all deserve was laid on Christ and he was punished for us. The sacrifice of Christ turns the wrath of God away from you. Not your obedience, not your holiness, not even your faith. Charles Spurgeon said, It is not faith in Christ that saves you. Though faith is the instrument, it is Christ's blood and merits. Christ's blood and merits is what saves you. So it is not our holiness that saves us. Though that will happen, but it is Christ's sacrifice that turns God's wrath from us. Hear me out. We are not adding to the work of Christ. Right? We call it the finished work of Christ for a reason. We are not adding to the work of Christ with our obedience. We are responding appropriately to what Christ has done for us whenever we obey. We're responding in true faith. We're responding with genuine gratitude. We're not adding to anything. This is the response Noah had. This is the response God's people always have. So rest in Christ's completed work and in God's grace while you strive and work for holiness. This is a fun paradox. The Christian life is one of constant and simultaneous rest and work. 
We rest in what Christ has done, and yet we work to make our calling and election sure. We work to bring God glory, all the while saying, I am saved by the sacrifice, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So God promised to judge the world by flood. Hear me. And he did. God today promises to judge the world at the return of Christ, and he will do it. He has a track record throughout the Bible of doing everything he says he's going to do. But God is still choosing undeserving sinners to be saved. Second Peter, Peter goes on to say, says, God is not slow in fulfilling his promise as some would count slowness. And this promise meaning the return of Christ and the judgment of the world. He says, God is not slow in keeping his promise, but he is being patient towards you so that you can repent and believe. God is being gracious. God is still choosing undeserving sinners to be saved. And God promises to save all who enter the ark of Christ by true faith. He promises that to us. So work hard to make your calling and election sure. And strive for holiness, but rest in what Christ has done for you. I'll leave you with a quote from, another quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, My faith rests not in what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what He has done, in what He is now doing for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sovereign grace. Because without it, we would all be damned. Thank you for the promise to save those who respond in faith. God, show grace to someone this evening and bring them to salvation. Please. God, I pray that we would, we would take what how Noah responded and, and your demands of us and what genuine faith looks like and holiness and all of these things. I pray we take them to heart. And not be content with where we're at. Not be content with our current state of holiness. Not be satisfied with, well, I only have these few sins remaining. But God, I pray that we would hate our sin like you hate it. And because of the coming judgment, that we would live in light of that and say, I I don't want to sin. I want to do good. I want to bring honor and glory to the God who has shown me this grace. So God, make us holy. Sanctify us by your truth, by your word. Make us more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.